I want to welcome everybody to this installment of the Tactical Sciences Coordination Network podcast. Uh, this week, we're going to be talking to the folks from the National Plant Diagnostic Network. My name is Marty Draper. I'm going to be your moderator today. I'm the Associate Dean for Research at Kansas State University, and we're joined today by Carrie Harmon from the Southern Plant Diagnostic Network and Jim Stack from the Great Plains Diagnostic Network. Uh, we're, we're really looking forward to hearing some of, the, uh, some of the interesting facts about the plant diagnostics that, uh, that the folks across the country are involved with. Uh, we know that biosecurity is an important issue for us, and that's the main function of these labs. So uh, I'm curious to hear just a little bit about the history of the National Plant Diagnostic Lab, or as I'll be referring, it, referring to it, the NPDN. Uh, Dr. Stack, would you like to share with us a little bit about that? Well, sure. So uh, the NPDN was established in 2002 uh, as a direct consequence of the vulnerability assessments that each federal department was tasked with following 9-11. And out of that came uh, Presidential Directive HSPD-9, uh, which called for the establishment of diagnostic networks for both animal and plant health. So that, that's the origin of this. Uh, we were divided into five regions, and uh, each region has a regional center that provides administrative leadership as well as diagnostic support as necessary for the states in that region. We are, it's not just the 50 states, but we also have reach into US territories in the Caribbean and the Pacific. So from east to west, we span uh, eight time zones. Uh, and yeah, I, I, I will leave it at that. That's, uh, that's quite a distance. So that must take us out into the ocean. Indeed it does. Yeah, American Samoa uh, to the uh, U.S. Virgin Islands. That's a, that's a lot of territory and a lot of in different environments from north to south and east to west. It also covers a, a lot of different crops um, and different portions of the green industry, um, natural areas. So the reach of these more than 70 laboratories representing literally hundreds of diagnostic and pest management specialists with this immediate reach to the public. So we, we are constantly with our hands literally in plant material that represents pretty much anywhere a plant is growing in the US. So 70 laboratories, I understand that the majority of the labs are at land grant universities. Do we reach beyond that? The primary labs pretty much are representing, representing the land-grant institutions, the land-grant universities across the U.S. However, we also are partnered, especially in states where the land-grant institution doesn't have a diagnostic laboratory. They are represented by either a State Department of Agriculture or um, we have also brought on U.S. Forest Service laboratories and even private industry labs. Um, we want to make sure that we've got good coverage but we're also trying not to be exclusive. This is a, a game where there is room for many players and we've all got the same goal, which is biosecurity and plant health. So we end up working together really well. It is primarily though, a land grant university um, and extension um, network. 
So when we're talking about biosecurity, are, <clears throat> are we talking about early recognition that there might be a problem out there? Yeah, uh, let me, I, I'll, I'm gonna start to answer that by following up Carrie's comment, which is, is an important one. It was implemented through the land-grant institution because land-grant uh, institutions already had reach in each state. And to document how well that has played out uh, in the last 18 years, NPDN has provided diagnostic services to uh, over 97% of the 3,000 plus counties in the United States. So that demonstrates uh, quite well the reach. And, and sorry, I've by the end of that, I've forgotten your question, Marty. Oh, so have I. So that's okay. We'll get back to it. Um, but if we're getting to that many counties, there must be a tremendous number of samples that have been processed. Millions of samples. Um, and each sample may represent one diagnosis or multiple diagnoses. That The thing is with plant health, it's often not just one thing. So the USDA has basically leveraged their funding into the professionals that already reach to the public and would be working with these samples and have the expertise to deal with the plant material that would be coming in from their area, their counties, their state. So we end up seeing um, that the training and relationships with regulatory and industry means that we can pivot to feeding data either into the regulatory um, effective action for regulatory if it's something new and scary and of biosecurity risk or to um, prescribing effective pest management actions to support our growers and green industries or what to do in a natural area if a new organism is found that is decimating a natural area. So I, I think back on on my bat, my history and, and having worked on potatoes before and certainly uh, Diseases coming from from outside the country are a concern, but we can have epidemics uh, that are that are based on on domestic pathogens too. So having that local information is really important as well. So so uh, Dr. Stack, it, it seems to me that with all this data that we're collecting from these samples, I assume we re retain records. Um, how many records do we have? And does that inform what we might see happening in the future? Well, yeah, so uh, Carrie alluded to this. Uh, we have uh, what we call the National Data Repository, which is a, a database of diagnostic records submitted from uh, all those states and, and countries that, or uh, counties that uh, we discussed. We have approximately 2.2 million. Uh, I don't know what the number is as of today, but we have approximately 2.2 million diagnostic records in that repository. It has become of interest, not just uh, uh, to support our own work, but epidemiologists who develop forecasting models or do climate matching studies are now exploring that database uh, to, to get better more resolution to some of the distribution maps that they're generating. Uh, we have a set of guidelines and rules on how to interpret those data, uh, as well as what the proper use of those data sets are. Uh, but it's a very valuable data set. And hopefully, I, I think it's underutilized to date, but we're really working on that, especially uh, Carrie's been pretty active in pushing these things forward over the last couple of years to 
to make sure that we're providing uh, adequate access to the data, but guarded access so that it can't be misinterpreted. But I think some of these data sets will be particularly valuable 10 years down the road when we're trying to assess the real impacts of climate change. If we, if we can look at data sets in this decade versus the next decade, that's really the time frame where we'll notice differences, not really year to year. So I, I think data sets like this particular one uh, will be particularly valuable in trying to assess impacts. Now, trends, trends from year to year are a little bit harder to see because of the, uh, the other, other uh, influences on those trends, but over a longer period of time, you got a better chance of being able to see that. Makes sense to me. Dr. Harmon, you're gonna say something. I lost my train of thought because I was listening. So, so I'll throw another thing your way. So you mentioned a bit ago about regulatory uh, uh, coordination or collaboration. I'm guessing some of these, uh, these pests are of greater pests and diseases are of greater concern than maybe others are. Absolutely. So I, as the director of the regional center lab at the Southern Plant Diagnostic Network at the University of Florida, have one of the labs that runs samples as a, a resource for USDA APHIS. So those would be regulatory concern. There are a few very specific heavy hitters that APHIS is looking for year to year that keep generating surge samples. This surge system that we have is a, a funnel and filter kind of system that um, samples are generated in states through um, surveys by agricultural inspectors of the State Departments of Agriculture or by the federal partners within APHIS, and those samples need somewhere to go. So our laboratories are positioned, many of them, with a distributed system of diagnostics so that we don't all have to be experts in everything and have all the equipment everywhere, but we have a distribution of it so that at any one time, samples can be parsed out to the laboratories with capacity and capability. The diagnostics get turned around quickly, fast enough before the samples might degrade. We're talking about diseased plant tissue, so it's not gonna hang around for a long time anyway. And then feed that data very specifically into the systems that allow people to start response. And those people are regulatory partners at the State Departments of Agriculture and the federal regulatory folks within APHIS. They actually do the response, whether that's uh, whatever the, the mitigation is, whether those are quarantines, destruction of plant samples, trace forwards and trace backs. So looking to where samples might've been shipped or where plants might've been shipped or where plants might've been shipped from so that we can track down where the disease is and the regulatory officials can initiate response. So our data are not regulatory in nature such that we start the response, but our data often do. So what are the some of the, the big uh, uh, issues that we maybe are, are concerned about, Dr. Stack? Maybe you can talk a little bit about uh, um, those uh, most uh, concerning uh, pests and pathogens that we might be seeing coming in that could affect our our crops and and landscape. Well, I think they they fall into uh, different categories. Uh, there are many concerns associated with uh, the organisms that impact plant health. Uh, but as we've seen over the last uh, 50, well couple decades, really. Uh, this steadily increasing volume of trade, it has been uh, the consequence of an increase in new organisms being introduced everywhere, basically. 
Uh, we are seeing many new pathogens on a fairly regular basis. I think the last data I got from APHIS, uh, USDA, was that they experience one uh, new potential uh, plant health issue every week. And so th that's not the number that they're detecting, that's the ones they're determining that could become a plant health issue in the United States. So trade's uh, causing a lot of that. Now, the types of impacts are anywhere from uh, a significant epidemic to a trade disruption. And, and so getting it right matters. And as uh, Carrie stated, you know, that no one can be an expert in all of these things. And so what one of the real benefits of this network is you are immediately tied into a network of experts and it's complementary expertise. So whether that be in the pathogens and pests themselves or in the host plant systems or in the technologies that we're using to help identify these organisms, it's very helpful and impactful, uh, especially to new people coming into the network so as soon as they become a member of the network, they're immediately connected with people who can help them with almost anything. So uh, I, I think that's some of the true benefits. Those risks though, are, are constant. There, some of them we know about. We know organism X in country Y is something we need to keep an eye on, but then there are others that surprise us. Uh, we didn't know they existed, or there's a new strain or a new population with different host range or different virulence properties so we have to constantly be on the lookout for knowns as well as the unknowns. So we see a lot of corollaries right there to what our current human health situation is with new strains, new virulences, new host ranges. Um, plant health is really not a lot different than human health or animal health. The organisms are different, the hosts are different, but there's a lot of similarities. Uh, that's a great take-home message for people. I think sometimes we don't think about plants getting sick, but any living organism can can be parasitized or, or uh, attacked by pathogens. So, um, good things to to, to hear. Um, so, so specifically, what kind of what kind of uh, of target organisms are we are we looking for? There's been some trace forwards and trace backwards from point source um, introductions. Um, in the past, and when we work with our regulatory partners, uh, what kinds of organisms have we been, been concerned about? This past year, and actually for the last several years, since 2004, off and on, um, but definitely 2019 and 2020, during the COVID disruptions, we had a massive trace back and trace forward um, effort generated by detection of Phytophthora remorum. This organism is the one that causes uh, sudden oak death out on the west coast, uh, killing uh, coast live oak, and pretty much within the ornamental trade all across the country, it's causing disruptions. Um, it causes what's called remorum blight, is the disease on an amazingly long list of host material, woody host material, um, from blueberries, camellias, viburnum. These are plants that folks are 
putting in their yards uh, that pick up at the big box stores or at their local nursery. These plants move all over the country. They might be propagated in one area and then move to another nursery in another state to be grown up for sale. And then they're shipped across the country to, you know, neighborhood store near you. And when we have a detection at, say, a nursery that's been under inspection by our regulatory partners, and there's a detection in that nursery, that nursery then produces their where they've sold plants to. So say your neighborhood nursery or um, home store, and then inspectors in that state then go out and check for those plants, whether those plants are still there, and sample for them. Those samples then move to laboratories like mine and throughout the distributed system of laboratories, where we test for the specific organism, as well as ones that are kind of close to it, because there are a few that are close to it that are also worrisome. So the current protocol actually detects everything at the genus level, sort of a wide net, and then very specifically, we generate data for that, that really important heavy hitter, scary one, Phytophthora remorum at the species level. And I want to men really mention that because a huge amount of our data that we generate at this point um, might be positive for Phytophthora because Phytophthora is an organism that actually causes all kinds of diseases. We find Phytophthora in the environment anywhere there's wet and plants. Like Phytophthora... Those are, and those are different species of Phytophthora that might be out there, not just that it, Phytophthora isn't just one thing, right? That's right. So Phytophthora is the genus and it's a really huge genus. It, it includes the pathogen that caused the Irish potato famine. It includes, uh, which also attacks tomatoes. And we see it every year in, in tomatoes and, and less so in potatoes, but definitely in, in tomatoes, especially where I am in Florida, we see it every year. A different species, Phytophthora remorum, is the one that is the regulatory action one that we really keep an eye on in the ornamental trade. But then there are a couple of other species in Phytophthora that also attack ornamentals and cause leaf spots and root rots. And we see them all the time, Phytophthora cinnamomi and others. So the idea here is that we the inspectors find samples that have symptoms. So the plant looks sick, but the plant is, when it, you know, plant sort of coughs with a leaf spot, but we know that a cough can be caused by allergies or a bacterial sinus infection or coronavirus, or maybe just too much hot sauce on your lunch, right? So plants with leaf spots have the same issue here. Biosecurity side of this is that at the lab, we have to not only be able to detect the cough and figure out what's causing the cough, but if the cough is caused by coronavirus, or in this case, Phytophthora remorum, we've got to be able to detect that really specifically. So what we look for and don't find is almost as important as what we look for and do find. And in this case, with Phytophthora remorum, not only do we want to always catch it if it's there so that those plants can be destroyed and we can stop that disease from becoming established anywhere else where it might do destructive um, things to live oak in the south, perhaps, any place that it's not already established. We also want to be able to, if the, if the pathogen is not there, we want to be able to have people buy those plants. We want to make sure that trade can open up quickly, that people can buy the plants and, and know that the plants are safe and won't die in their yard from Phytophthora morum. Um, so what we detect is important and what we look for and don't find is also important, which kind of goes back to what Dr. Stack was talking about with the number of data and how our data are being used. One of the things that we have in that database is a tremendous amount of negative data. This isn't negative like, I don't like it. This is negative like we looked for something and didn't find it. That can be really important too, because it tells people that we are looking for it. We have the expertise to find it. 
and it hasn't been found. Now, this is not survey data, which is where you go out and look for a long time for something really specific. This is diagnostic data, which means these are plants that somebody went, eh, something looks sick there, we need to take care of it. So it's a little bit different than survey data and has to be interpreted correctly, which Dr. Stack alluded to, but negative data is really important too. So I wanted to make sure that I brought that up because when we have these big regulatory events, a tremendous amount of the data that we produce is positive for the genus. Yes, there was a Phytophthora causing disease on these plants, but it's negative for Phytophthora remorum, the species, so the plants can still be sold. Maybe they just need to be managed with a fungicide, which is the part where our diagnosticians and pest management specialists are that interaction between biosecurity, important stuff, and also well, the important stuff of agricultural production and the green trade and our industries and economy in general. I, I'm guessing it might also be able to tell us that if it was positive here in this location at this time, but it was negative at this nearby location at the same time, that you know something about whether it's moving around or not. Absolutely. It's one of the reasons that we when these trace forwards and trace back situations happen, the notifications happen really quickly. And part of that is APHIS tells us that this is going on. But the other part is that we, as the regional centers, can push that information out in seconds to a, our specific list of members and our laboratories, our, our diagnosticians, be on the lookout for this right now, be expecting samples, be listening for your State Department of Ag to give you a, a call and need to process samples right now. That quick communication and appropriate communication means that nothing gets like leaked to the press that's not factual and it just scares people or it's incorrect, but also the communication that does need to happen, the facts that need to move to those who need to move them and receive them, that information moves quickly and our folks are trained to do this appropriately so that it that, that system, that structure in place of this network means that we're supporting each other, whether it's our partners in regulation or in industry, or it's talking to each other as diagnosticians. So Dr. Stack, um, I'm kind of curious. You mentioned a little bit about the threat of trade. Um, and, and we certainly go through an inspection process anytime we send something somewhere else. So that's where our federal government regulatory agencies come into play. Where'd this thing come from? Does anybody have any idea? Where did Phytophthora morm come from specifically? Yeah. 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 yeah so uh, we're, we're very fortunate that uh, technologies have advanced uh, the way they have because we have fairly good ability to resolve uh, these things, both phylogenetically, meaning their heritage, uh, from what organism did they evolve uh, but also phylogeography in determining where it came from. This particular one is believed to, be uh, to come from an area in China uh, and uh, has probably been distributed a long time ago. Uh, it was first detected in the United States in California. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so there have been separate um, introductions in different countries around the world of this organism. Uh, it's not just here in the United States. But these types of introductions are happening on a daily basis. Uh, the volumes of trade are, are enormous. I, I would like to follow up a little bit. Uh, Carrie gave a great uh, example with remorum. Uh, one other type of uh, plant health 
emergency that we deal with is when the organism is on what's called a select agent list. And uh, that's a very special group of organisms that the USDA has uh, identified as significant enough that we want to have a separate set of restrictions on them. So uh, I'm not going to go into them at length, but basically it, it, it puts uh, a set of restrictions on any lab that's working with these organisms. Uh, but they, they are also a trade concern. It's not just a plant health issue. But what happens in those cases, it, in addition to all the characters that uh, Dr. Harmon mentioned, it's also uh, a legal issue because they're, they, they, the select agent a list is a legal entity. And there are organisms that affect humans, organisms that affect animals, and organisms that affect plants. Currently, we have seven such organisms on that list for plants. And we detected one of those in the state of uh, Michigan a couple of years ago. And again, because of some of the partnerships that we already have in place with regulatory agencies, the NPDN labs uh, played a very major role in helping resolve those in terms of processing samples, working with regulatory partners at the state and federal level uh, to uh, facilitate the distribution of information and results of diagnostic tests. And this becomes really important uh, for, I'll just give an example, uh, Friday afternoon, you get a phone call saying, can you process some samples for us? Because we're not allowing this nursery to sell their stock on a holiday weekend uh, because we have plants that look like they might have it. And that's what- uh, And they may have- and they may have sent plants out to retail outlets that are going to have big sales that weekend. And I can kind of see where this is going to, going to cascade. Certainly. And, you know, there, there's a history here that uh, back prior to the establishment of NPDN, that APHIS really didn't have a lot of labs they could, they could uh, draw on to help in these uh, circumstances. We had an introduction in 2003, and I'm not going to go into any details, but there was an introduction of an organism in 2003 that the single expert lab uh, for USDA that was processing those samples became overwhelmed. They had, you know, 10, 12, 30,000 samples in a, in a bat of an eye. But now that there's a diagnostic network, and uh, as Dr. Harmon alluded to, you know, we have these certain labs that are capable of processing regulatory samples, now instead of a thousand samples showing up at that expert lab for processing, now a hundred samples show up. That's a much more workable number. So we that- can turn those clear, around really fast then. Right, and allow industry to move product. Uh, so that's a, that is a very big deal. Companies can go out of business while waiting for an answer if it can't move quickly enough. That was so, the funnel and filter model that I was talking about where the these big numbers of samples get funneled first to many labs across the, the country to be filtered for what might need to go to the expert laboratory. And so we might have thousands of samples moving across a distributed network of laboratories within the NPDN, and then only a hundred or dozens that are filtered out to be moved forward for regulatory uh, confirmation at the confirmatory lab in Beltsville. 
So just a screening process that, that it, it's triage. Right. In the truest, it's triage in the truest sense of the word. Yes. Okay. Okay. So what? So we've talked about um, uh, some trees that are affected by sudden oak death or remorum blight. Um, other other plant species that we are, have concerns with that that you're particularly watching. Well, Dr. Stack brought up Ralstonia, the select agent. So the that was where that was where he was going with the one in 2003. Then is that correct? Well, and and then just uh, 18 months, two years ago, uh, uh, we had summer. another introduction in Michigan. And that was a major one. Uh, that one came in also from a Central American country. And the shocking thing is that by the time it was noticed, uh, the plants had been shipped to approximately 39 uh, retailers. I so think those were geraniums. Is that right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, so the, we've got, the, got wood ornamentals. We've got geraniums. We've got... Um, um, was there, was there something on stone fruits or something too? So plum pox virus would be the one on stone fruits. And that's a, a disease that I actually have being in Florida, have a lot less um, experience with because we don't grow a lot of stone fruits in Florida. It's just too hot for them. But our partner lab up at Cornell University ended up working quite a bit with the stone fruit groups and the industry and um because we had a regional center at Cornell up until three days ago, where it is now shifted to the University of Maine. But Cornell was instrumental in um, working between research extension and their diagnostic lab and working with others up and down the coast and inland to document what techniques worked for detection. Um, and then to deploy testing for plum pox virus to be able to ensure that orchards, once it had been detected, that the plants were removed and that orchards or replacement trees continued to be healthy. So the while the organism is totally different, now we're talking about a virus instead of a water mold, the issue is still the same. You still need to run a lot of samples to delimit where the pathogen might be. We're still worried about trade or about the economics of production for the growers that are affected. And this is an organism that's on other countries' lists. So we want to be sure that our growers are able to produce crops that are saleable within the country as well as externally. I think that list is pretty long, uh, Marty. So, and, and it it represents the full range of uh, pathogen types and pest types that affect uh, plant health. So a number of years ago, the pale cyst nematode was detected in Idaho. And for a short period of time, the, U the US and then Idaho lost the ability to export potatoes. Well, that's a pretty big deal in a state like Idaho. Eventually with uh, good diagnostics and good surveillance, we were able to whittle that down to six counties in Idaho. Uh, we have uh, the bacterial disease that affects corn that was detected here in the Great Plains region in 2014. Uh, and for a short period of time until things got sorted out, it was uh, pretty disruptive, uh, but it, it's now present in 12 states. We have citrus greening, and I'm surprised Dr. Herman didn't mention that as 
it's a major issue in the state of Florida, becoming a major issue in other citrus producing states in the U.S. This list is long. I, I could go on, uh, but it these pathogens, these pests, we have uh, forest systems in the United States are under assault from arthropod pests. Uh, the bark beetles, I, I think the U.S. Forest Service has estimated 100,000 trees a day are being killed by pests and pathogens in the United States, certainly west of the Mississippi. Uh, we have a lot of uh, pests and pathogens impacting uh, food, food crops, uh, ornamental industries. It's pretty general in nature. If we think about what we all learned in ecology, was it a hundred years ago, Marty, when you and I were in graduate school? Uh, right around you know, that. We learned a thing called island biogeography and that, you know, the, the geographic separation of organisms allowed them to diverge, but that has become irrelevant. We're putting plants on ships and transporting them across oceans. We're putting them on airplanes and flying them over mountains. So the geographic boundaries uh, have become irrelevant. And so we're in this great mixing experiment, which allows not only the movement of organism from location to location, it provides an opportunity for the genetic exchange between these different populations, which will promote the emergence of new virulence types, new host ranges of organisms, and we've, that's been very well documented in the United Kingdom, where we had uh, two species from different continents show up in nursery plants in the same nursery, and they hybridized. And the frightening thing about that is that the virulence and host range could not be predicted by the virulence and host range of the two parents. And so that's why it's important uh, to have a network like this. Uh, we are able to oftentimes be that signal detector. We provide that initial signal that alerts the regulatory agencies that they need to pay attention to something. And the ability to contain and eradicate is very much a function of how soon you detect it after that introduction. So it, it's really important to have that reach to the county level in the United States. And I think the NPDN uh, was a good idea, well implemented. I think the uh, the regulatory agencies talk about early detection and rapid response. Exactly. So Jim, you've thrown things out there. You've got ecology, you've got genetics, you've got pathology. We've got quite a mixture that comes into play when we're looking at the impact of, of these organisms. You mentioned about our forest ecosystems, but our our urban forests are also being uh, being assailed by by arthropod pests. We certainly are dealing with emerald ash borer, uh, Asian longhorn borer. Uh, who knows what other what other uh, arthropod pests are out there waiting to uh, to create new challenges for us. Um, so the so the lab network then looks at uh, at insects and other arthropod pests as well as uh, as plant diseases. The network does have uh, representation from weed science, entomology, um, pathology is our strength. Uh, most of the diagnostic labs are disease diagnostic labs first, but we have quite a few of our laboratories that have at least a presence of an entomologist or a relationship with an entomologist or actually one of the diagnosticians is an entomologist so that we are sure to represent all of the pest types we need. And if the, if the expertise isn't in the lab, most land-grant institutions have 
an entomology lab or at least an entomology extension professional who could be tapped or is generally part of the diagnostic group so that when it's out of out of my area of expertise, so I'm a pathologist, so if it's not a disease issue, but I'm pretty sure it's an arthropod of some sort, I can talk to our either our insect diagnostician, who is in a diagnostic lab that is just for bugs, or a nematode diagnostician who is in a nematode assay lab. We also have connections with our weed scientists because there are plenty of weed issues that also require pest management and identification, but the the prime focus has been on pathology at this point. When the network was just starting out, we were trying to make sure that we had pathology, entomology, weed science, and nematology all represented in every state. Over the nearly 20 years of the network, this is a challenge that I'm gonna talk about. It's the expertise in those areas is not equally distributed across the country in terms of um, those experts actually even being at institutions anymore. Departments have changed, people have retired, and the replacements don't necessarily have extension responsibilities or departments have shrunk, and we simply haven't been able to replace some of those. So what we're finding is our expertise really relies on that network that we have so that we are making sure we have access to the expertise, even if it's not represented specifically in the diagnostic lab itself. You have to work with the tools that are available to you. And uh, uh, that's where a network gains its strength, right? The fact that you can rely on your neighbor to help you out when you've got a deficiency and each individual location can focus on what their biggest, uh, their biggest concerns are. Um, One excellent example of that, Marty, is uh, during this COVID period where some labs were shut down because the universities were uh, learning how to mitigate this, this uh, challenge, uh, we had states calling other states that still had function to get samples processed. And again, another strength of this network is now they all know each other. So they know who to call. They can pick up the phone and say, I just got some samples in. Uh, and it happens even in non-COVID time. Another uh, threat on the horizon is this tomato brown fruit rugose virus, a virus that's disseminated in seed. So when we import seed, uh, some of that is infected with this virus. And, and the ability to run the assays <laughs> to identify that are not clearly worked out. So not every lab's capable of doing that. So it's very important that they can pick up the phone and say, look, uh, I've got a grower asking me to test this. Can you run this sample for me? And, and it gets done because actually what's amazing, th these are 70 labs of great people <laughs> that actually want to help everybody else as well as themselves. And that's a very positive thing to see uh, that not only do they have expertise, it's not like they're not busy. They, in a, during a growing season, these labs are, are running day-to-day, uh, uh, -day, uh, trying to keep up with the sample loads. And yet, if somebody needs help, they get it. It's a, it's a very, very great experience. Now you mentioned about uh, this uh, tomato brown rugose virus coming in on seed. I think there was another introduction on seed a few years ago, and it took like three years for it to get to the level where it was detectable visually. 
um, was a green bean uh, model mosaic mild, virus. Mild green. Cucumber. Yeah, I, I think that's the one you're CGMMV. CGMMV. I know the, the virus initials. Too many letters in there, but I think that speaks to the importance of having methods of detection that you can find something, but the, the challenge is when you don't know what you're looking for, right? It actually brings up kind of an uncomfortable for me uh, thought, and that is that one of the challenges we really have and that NPDN tries to address is that everything is faster, needs to be faster, needs to be more specific. And the, the capability of doing some of this testing, so tomato brown rugose fruit, fruit virus is an RNA virus. It doesn't mean anything to most people and it shouldn't be a real issue, except that it requires an extra level of dealing with the nucleic acids, the virus itself, being able to detect it, such that even if your lab is doing molecular work, which not all of our labs have enough staff and equipment to do proficiently and, and are comfortable with it all the time, it now requires handling that is much harder, um, much more specific in uh, how the, the training that you need and how careful you have to be and how clean your lab has to be. But we're talking about labs that deal with plants coming in with pollen and dirt, like soil still around the roots and, and kind of a like we work in a pretty messy space, but you have to be absolutely precise and clean. And it requires a different kind of training and for some of our labs, it requires new equipment. And that in and of itself, the detection level required, this, we're not talking about you know, 20 years ago kind of technology, we're talking about technology within the last decade that has to be deployed. To get that kind of equipment into every lab is an astonishingly expensive issue. <laughs> and NPDN has some money thanks to the NIFA project that funds it, but it is not enough to keep replacing equipment. And when NPDN was started, there was a big push to get PCR, so the ability to detect nucleic acids into as many labs as possible. Some of that equipment is now approaching 20 years old. You can imagine if you buy a new car, that 20 years later, your teenager is hoping that they can inherit it, but it's going to be a jalopy, right? We are working with some of the equipment in the labs now that is approaching jalopy status, and we are going to need to replace it to make sure that our labs are prepared, have the equipment they need to actually diagnose this stuff. Because remember what I was talking about the cough and how plants have a limited vocabulary based on symptoms, we can't do a lot of diagnostics on symptoms alone. We really need to detect the organism. But when the organism is sneaky and difficult to detect, like an RNA virus, you have to have the specific equipment and technology and training to find that thing. And the equipment to do that is not just a microscope. It's a thermocycler and it's a special kit and handling and it's just everything's a little bit harder. So one of our challenges is making sure that we can continue to equip the laboratories with what they need. Now, the NPDN is a cooperative agreement between the institution that houses that lab and USDA NIFA, such that 
NIFA provides some money, but the institution is expected to kick in too. And so our diagnosticians are constantly pulling funds from one place or another, or asking for funds or generating sample fees in many states. And that funding is all cobbled together to be able to fund what's needed to serve our clientele. Whether it's for biosecurity or our growers in the state, it's still the same need. So my tomato growers in Florida still have to know if they've got this virus, whether it's the mild green model or it's tomato brown rugose, they still need to know if they've got it in their plants and have to get rid of those plants or you know, whether it was in the seed to begin with. Whether I'm detecting it for a biosecurity purpose or a grower's trade need or economic need, well, it almost doesn't matter. We still have to be positioned to do it. That's what's awesome about the NPDN is for us, it doesn't matter if we're looking for the big scary stuff or the stuff that our grower needs to deal with. The tools, the toolkit, the people, the expertise has to all be deployed anyway, one way or another for both intents. And that's why it continues to function so well. And so if, I could add, if I could add one follow-up to that, because that's a really, really important point that uh, Dr. Harmon just mentioned. And it, it's not just trying to keep up with the ever-changing landscape of pathogens and pests or keeping up, uh, it's also keeping up with the technologies. So the network is continuing to evolve. And one of the things we've done in the, just in the last few years to help our diagnosticians was to implement a professional development program and that's to you know make sure all the things that, that Carrie just said about you know being aware of what's out there, being aware of the technologies that are available, who has those technologies, and learning those technologies so that you can bring them to your own lab. Uh, we've committed to providing that uh, uh, learning experience to all of the diagnosticians so that they can advance with the technologies, advance with the challenges. And uh, I, I, think, I think that's gonna be ultimately a very positive thing for the network. So I'm hearing some themes here. I'm, I'm hearing that you've got some challenges that are biological, because you don't always know what you're looking for. You've got some challenges that are technological because things change and how you, what it takes to detect some of these things changes over time. You've got financial challenges. Um, I'm guessing that you maybe, you maybe have some, some um, staffing challenges. Uh, uh, Dr. Stack alluded to the fact that he and I took ecology 100 years ago. If that's the case, there's probably some folks that are getting ready to retire. Um, so how are you going to approach these, these challenges that are facing the network to make sure that you're able to continue with your mission? So I'm going to ask Carrie to answer that, but I'm going to interject one thing. I think one of the things that has come out of establishing this network is many younger scientists are looking at diagnostics as a career opportunity. And that's really important for us. It's not what was left on the, the available positions list. I think people are seeking out these positions now because they're gonna be tied into a profession and not just a closet. I, I totally agree. I, I think the profile of diagnostics and diagnosticians has really risen with the 
the work that NPDN has done, but it's it's the diagnosticians themselves who are promoting the science. Um, and I got into diagnostics myself, not quite a hundred years ago, um, because I had to do a little bit of work in the summer before I started grad school at Purdue University. And I worked in the clinic for the summer, the plant disease clinic. And I got to meet two incredible diagnosticians who became like my godmothers, my diagnostic godmothers. They were, it's, this goes back to some of what uh, Dr. Stack said about a really generous group of people, hardworking, they will always help somebody out, but they're also always willing to teach and really take somebody under their wing. And so it is up to the network to make sure that we're bringing scientists into the diagnostic family. This isn't a, a cutthroat industry. This is a group that is vested at its core with making sure that diagnostics continues, that people are supported, that they're educated, that they have what they need to be successful because there's more work to go around than any of us can do. But it's more than that. It takes kind of a, I wanna say it takes a special kind of person to be a diagnostician and I'll tell you why. And I don't mean this to be self-flattering in any way. This is, to be in diagnostics is to be okay with never being sure if you're right. And that's a hard place to be. It's a very humbling place to be. You have to know that you never know if the answer you just gave your client is really the final answer, but it has to be pretty close to what is useful for them to use today. So your answer changes based on the technology you have, how specific you can get. It changes based on the expertise of the diagnostician, and it depends on what the final use of that diagnosis is going to be. So that sounds like I kind of went way off on one angle, but what I wanted to say is that it's a, it's a burnout field because you're never sure if you're done. And so diagnosticians tend to reach out to provide each other with a safety net, bring each other in, make sure everybody knows how to be helped and that it's okay to ask for help. And the network has just given us more tools to reach out and ask for that help and to receive it. it. Amazing expertise through the professional development system, through our meetings, which are every couple of years and bring this huge family together. It's a massive reunion every two years where we get to learn about and talk about diagnostics as the diagnostic family. So while it's a challenge to make sure that we're replacing the folks who've earned their retirement or have moved on to perhaps working in the USDA to help promote the programs that run places like NPDN or programs like NPDN, but also making sure that the science itself continues to flourish. We're promoting the science of diagnostics. We're advancing the science of diagnostics by the people that we bring into it and support. So in the end, it's kind of a selfish um, situation I'm in, I want really good people to be in my science because I want my science to continue to be amazing. And the network, I think we just really get that and continue to promote it. So my little plug there for, for bringing in new scientists to diagnostics, the tools we get to use are the same as in whether you're in plant medicine, animal medicine, or human medicine, we get to use the same tech and tools and have an incredible impact. Um, it's just a really great family to be in. So, so I think you speak a, a little bit of, a, of an area of public education as well. And one of the challenges is helping, helping the public understand um, what we do, what you do, 
and uh, how important those uh, aspects of biosecurity might be. Um, it, it, it touches everything that we are around, everything in our environment, whether it's uh, the people around us or the animals around us or the plants around us. So I'll throw it out to, to each of you if you have anything close in, in closing comments that you'd like to add that maybe we've missed. We've been talking now for uh, about 45 minutes or a little over that. So uh, um, what do you think? Uh, Dr. Stack, you have anything you'd like to add? Sure. I, I think uh, USDA, NIFA is to be commended uh, for not just implementing this program, but supporting it uh, through the years. We've uh, been fortunate to have good leadership within NIFA uh, for this program. Uh, it's been interactive in nature uh, and, and positive. Uh, so I, I think USDA deserves some credit. I'll repeat what I said earlier. It was a good idea, well implemented. Uh, to to kind of wrap up, I would say um, NPDN, uh, it's a, a, a community of diagnosticians uh, that have a passion for plant health and uh, a desire to uh, share their expertise with um, other diagnosticians. It, it's an excellent program. Uh, I hope it continues forever. I would say they want to share it with the public too, right? Um, you look at the extension mission, it's really about helping people do better, be more profitable, be healthier, um, be able to get through this world that we live in uh, in a better way than they may have without us. So um, Dr. Harmon, you have anything to add? You guys, I think, um, said it awfully well. I, I think I gave my real, um, my real statement in my last little bit there about, about the science of diagnostics and promoting it. But the, the public piece, I think, maybe I'll say a little bit about that, that we're most of us extensionists. So our job is to be the intersection between the science and the public, the folks that are going to use that information. And most of us, even if we're introverts functioning as extroverts for our extension job, really believe that the science is meant to be in the hands of those who need it. And so whether we're doing diagnostics or we're just talking to somebody about how best to grow their lawn or their peppers or how to detect something on a shipment or make sure that their shipment is clean and clear and ready to be purchased overseas, I think the time and the conversation that we spend with those folks, the actual extending of the science is probably the most valuable and the best part of what I get to do. Well, it's great to hear that from both of you. Uh, so this is a great program that's supported by uh, USDA, the National Institute of Food and Agriculture, or NIFA as we've been referring to it today. And I want to thank uh, Dr. Kerry Harmon from uh, the University of Florida Diagnostic Lab and the Southern Plant Diagnostic Network and uh, Dr. Jim Stack from uh, Kansas State University and the Great Plains Diagnostic Network for joining us today as, as our guests to talk about tactical sciences and how, uh, how plant diagnostics, plant diseases, plant pests are important for us as we're looking at the viability of our natural systems 
and our food enterprises. So I want to thank you, Dr. Harmon. Thank you, Dr. Stack. It's been a great conversation today, and I hope our audience enjoys being able to listen to it. Thank you, and we'll talk to you again on a podcast to come.